another ADC soundbite. Hey there, welcome to another ADC Soundbite. This is Danny Zacharias, and I'm sitting here with Mark Boda, who's the 2013 Hayward Lecturer. So Mark, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I teach Old Testament at McMaster Divinity College, McMaster University. I've been there for the past 10 years, but I grew up in Canada, uh, grew up in Saskatchewan, ministered in Toronto in pastorates, uh, and as well did a summer internship in Toronto, Nova Scotia. So I feel like I've been to every part of Canada, the West, Central, and the East, and feel fully Canadianized. How's Good. that? <laughs> and you're, is it, did you say this is the first time in the Valley for you? First time in the Valley. I've been to other parts of Nova Scotia, down to Yarmouth, into Dartmouth, and Halifax, of course, the Truro and uh, DeBert area, but never did get down to the Annapolis Valley. And someday I'll get to the Apple Blossom Festival, but I guess I missed it this year. Yes, you did, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very good. So could you give, give us just a snippet? You did the first lecture last night. It was great. I really enjoyed it. Looking forward to the next two. But if you can kind of give us an encapsulation of what are you trying to do? Uh, why did you choose this topic for the Hayward Lectures? Well, I, I tried to find something that I think would be really helpful uh, in the broader theological academy within the seminary. Uh, helpful for hopefully everyone who's who's comes to the to the meeting, whether or not they're involved in Bible or Old Testament in particular, and helpful for pastors that are that are interested in preaching and teaching in in the Bible, especially the Old Testament. My focus of attention is on the discipline of Old Testament theology, biblical theology, which for me was a way to come out of exegesis, really close attention to the reading of the Old Testament text and to bring it into conversation with broader Christian theology and especially to application to the lives of people today in preaching and in teaching. So it, in Old Testament theology, we focus attention on ways in which the Old Testament message can be encapsulated and in particular make connections into the way it's used within the New Testament and within Christian theology. So last night I just set out how people in the past have talked about Old Testament theology, what lies at the core of the Old Testament in terms of its message, methodologies they've used to go about unpacking that message. And near the end of that talk, I tried to lay out an agenda, my own agenda, my own program of how I do Old Testament theology. The next two nights, uh, the focus of attention is on actually the content of Old Testament theology. And I'm gonna focus in on what I see as kind of the heart of the Old Testament. Uh, I call it the, taking the pulse of the Old Testament. And I think there's a triple pulse. And I'm going to talk about three kind of foundational messages or what I call creeds in the Old Testament. One's called the narrative creed, which focuses in on a storied form of, of telling us about the theology of, of Israel. It's interesting that in, in Deuteronomy, um, when a person comes to bring their first fruits, they're told to to kind of make a theological declaration before the priest. And the theological declaration they make isn't usually the way we think of a theological declaration, uh, which is usually very abstract within our Western context, but actually it's a story. My father was a wandering Arabian, and we tell the story of Israel, of Jacob, and of the Exodus, etc. So, you know, for, for Israelites, the one of the core, core creeds, I call them pulses, of the Old Testament is just the basic foundational story and it tells us about a God who acts in history and transforms history 
I'm going to talk about two others, though, as well, that come alongside that. The second one is called the Character Creed. Exodus 34 is probably the best example of this, but this just weaves its way throughout the whole Old Testament, that the character of God as this gracious God who's long-suffering. And the third creed is what I call the, the relationship creed or the covenant creed. And it is this basic rhythm that you see over and over in almost all the books of the Old Testament. I will be your God, and you will be my people. Or I will be your father, and you will be my son, as to the Davidic covenant. So this covenantal theology that keeps on being repeated wherever we go. So I want to develop that tomorrow. I mean, tonight we're going to talk about that in terms of the history of redemption, the way in which these three creeds, the narrative, the character, and the relationship creed, relate to, re to re the redemption that God brings, salvation. And then tomorrow night I'm going to take this into the larger context of creation and the way in which these three creeds all point ultimately to a creational context, a message that Israel and uh, the people of God were not just about their own redemption and salvation, but their whole story is wrapped up in a larger story about the transformation of creation and show the way these creeds, all three of them, push towards the creational. And each, each night I do make connections in the end to our New Testament context, to the Christian context, and try to make some application to how this transforms the way we walk as Christians. Great. And for those of you listening, uh, just in case you weren't able to make it or haven't been here, our Hayward lectures always go up on YouTube for free, so keep an eye on our social media sites and we let you guys know when those came out. Um, something that you mentioned yesterday, and uh, I think maybe was intentional or not with your idea of taking a pulse, and also what you just said right now is the... Um, the misnomer, this is probably a pet peeve of yours, of equating Old Testament with law, New Testament with grace. And, I, and that's why I really like the pulse and the heart image. Um, you want to speak a little bit to that because it's still, unfortunately, very pervasive that we equate the Old Testament with law and the New Testament with grace. And, uh, you know, if, if, the, if people don't like something about the Bible, they go to the harsh passages of the Old Testament, right? And they yeah. grab those. Yeah. I want to speak a little bit to that. Well, there's, it, this is what, what hit me when I uh, was working on woe oracles in the prophets. And uh, one day I discovered, you know, the woe oracles. They say, woe to so-and-so, and they attack, you know, attack those people and call down judgment on them. And I, I saw a comment in, in one of the commentaries that actually the longest woe oracle in the entire Bible is not found in the Old Testament, but it's found in the lips of Jesus, Jesus. towards the Pharisees and scribes. Yes. And that really rocked me. And then I, I was looking at some passages on the divine warrior theme in the Bible. And lo and behold, I discovered that Revelation 19 in the New Testament was one of the harshest and most bloody pictures of the divine warrior theme in the entire Bible. Mm -hmm. And those kind of made me rethink uh, what I thought about in terms of the Old Testament versus the New Testament. I think the law-grace dichotomy is often put forward, it's, it's, it was key to the Reformation, and because of that, because of Luther's distinction of law versus grace, uh, it, it ends up being such a key way of viewing the Old Testament. I think if you can just move forward to look at John Calvin and some of, come of Calvin's approach, you see far more continuity approaches, and that's because he chose the theme of covenant, really, to talk about that relationship between the Old and New Testament, which allowed for some discontinuity but also loads of continuity and connection. Uh, when I first, when, when I was in seminary, I remember a professor taking us to the Ten Commandments, and I'll talk about this tonight in the, in the Hayward Lecture, and uh, just reading the first part of Exodus 20 in the Ten Commandments, talking about, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. 
But, oh, that's a statement of grace. That the first statement before you get to the Ten Commandments of do and don't do, of prohibitions and uh, imperatives, is the statement about the foundation in grace. So it's all about grace. It's all about God's initiative in the Old Testament. And I think what Luther saw is he saw a reflection in, of course, the Pharisees, and he saw a reflection in the way the Pharisees were using the law in the New Testament context. He saw the priests of the medieval period, and he just made this leap in connection. And I think we, made it make, we need to make a distinction between the Pharisees, scribes, and certain ways of approaching the law within Second Temple Judaism, and especially within those combatants or those people that Jesus is talking to, and distinguish that from actually the heart of Torah itself. It's not surprising to me that after the study that Jesus draws the basic ethic, Christian ethic, of love upon, he bases it upon the Torah. The love of the Lord your God and the love of your neighbors itself is drawn directly from Torah. And when Paul talks about the two types of faith, in the sense that the two approaches to salvation, he talks about a way of works and he quotes from the Torah. That's often used. But it's interesting, he also quotes for the second one, one based upon faith and not upon works, he also quotes from the Torah, from Deuteronomy, which shows us that it's not a law versus grace, that that, that grace element is key and it's foundational to all the Old Testament. And the prophets themselves base their message of judgment and of discipline. They call the people to repentance, but they call them to that based upon God's incredible love for them. So that, that really helped me in terms of trying to open up the Old Testament and to stop moving towards because at the end of the day you almost have to have this view that we have two different gods that's you know of course marcion's marcion's solution to things we don't have two gods it's, and it's not that god had a bad day in old testament <laughs> and suddenly one day woke up and had a good day no this is the same triune god from beginning to end and that's why we see similar rhythms of law and grace in both old and new testament but the the direction of foundation is always grace before law so you talked a little bit last night and, to the, and in your intro about um, your experience in pastoring. So what was your, how did, how did you come to be an Old Testament scholar? Where did that interest arise? Uh, how did that integrate with your time in ministry? Yeah, well, I, I was a, a youth pastor in Toronto, a church of about 1,000, 1,200. Um, there was five or six of us on the staff. And... Um, as, as we moved into my third year of ministry, I was there for four or still four years, um, the preaching pastor said, you know, Mark, we made a commitment to you at the beginning of your time here that we would really build into you and mentor you. Is there any areas that you really want to develop further? And I said, yeah, I really would like to develop my preaching more. Now, I had been preaching maybe a few times a year. And uh, he said, good, here's what we're going to do. Uh, for the two morning services... The first, first Sunday of every month, I'll have you preach two services, same sermon both times. And during that, during that time, I'll, I will evaluate on a three-by-five card, put the positive one side, negative on the other side, and we'll have somebody else in the congregation. There was a professor from Humber College who was in the congregation for Portion and who was gracious enough to do this for me too. And each month they would evaluate me, and I preach through First Peter. And first Sunday of each month, I preach through First Peter. And that experience was exhilarating. I mean, what an opportunity for this young guy to be able to preach to that large of a congregation. And it really worked well. It really happened. But they didn't know how, you know, completely inadequate I felt up front. And it unearthed a lot of areas that I really felt 
uneasy with, especially in my work in the original languages. So near the end of that period of that, that year of preaching, I decided it was time to move to some further theological education. And I moved down to Philadelphia and went to a seminary there from a very different tradition than I had been used to, a more reformed tradition at that point. And I entered into a department that was high octane Old Testament professors, maybe the best that school had ever seen with you know, famous professors like Bruce Walkey and Trevor Longman and Raymond Dillard and, and Al Groves. And it was just a world that came alive to me in Old Testament. Of course, I did well in Hebrew. I enjoyed language along with my Greek. And this just opened up a door into the world of Old Testament. And I particularly felt a real burden uh, from my own home denominational and background and my own Canadian context that this was just not an area that was well-developed within my theological background. And so I really had a mission from the very beginning when I headed off for graduate work at Cambridge. My passion from day one was to be able to go back into my Canadian theological context and to bring the riches of the Old Testament and try to open up a hermeneutic for Canadian pastors towards the Old Testament to un unlock 75% of the canon that often is just not tapped into. And I thought, really had potential, especially in a postmodern context, to be able to speak into that context, especially through some of the poetry, some of the wisdom literature, that to me just spoke the language of many within a postmodern or post-foundational context. Mm. I didn't mention that I was going to ask you this question, but um, given what you were just talking about with the difficulty sometimes of, of pastors not sure what or how to preach from the Old Testament, we continue to stumble over those difficult passages, especially in the Inch context where well, we're, we're all love and happy and don't, you know, don't offend others, but the, the war of the Old Testament, because that's, all, that's a big part of what we read in there. Um, how, do we, how do we approach that um, as, as pastors and preachers? Yeah, that's a hard question, and probably one of the most common questions that I'm asked today because of our, I guess, our attitude, especially in Canadian context, towards anything violent or anything quite negative. We want everybody happy and ironic. And uh, you don't often find that, I'll just be honest with you, as you go into the global south and to other contexts where this is not seen as, seen as that odd. Uh, part of it is trying to understand the Old Testament in its its ancient sociological context into the realities that are on the ground within that ancient world. A recent study by Walter Brueggemann on Joshua, on the book of Joshua, on the conquest narratives, and um, some of the harem laws, the laws about eradication, uh, it was a very interesting book, and it was not what I expected actually from Walter's, from Walter's pen. Because if you know Walter, he's been kind of on the side of the downtrodden and lament has been a key to his, to his work. But in that volume, he tries to help us understand the people of Israel in the context of a world in which they are not the urbanites, they are not the power group, they are not the royal hegemonic group, but they are actually the underlings, they are those that are being downtrodden. And to try to understand that world in that context where you have a level of abuse that is so far beyond anything we could imagine and to understand those texts in light of that context rather than going to our own context uh, today. 
people who have been through very uh, difficult, maybe violent experiences, uh, have a cry, deep cry inside for a level of justice that many of us don't understand growing up in suburban Canada in a very safe kind of environment. And there's something in these texts that speak to that cry for injustice, which I think Walter was trying to tap into in his, in his work. But it did take doing some hard digging and not simply reading that text with my modern Canadian eyes, but trying to read it within the real soci sociology of that ancient world and through those ancient eyes. But it doesn't just get rid of everything magically, completely. But it does help us to understand that world. And it does help us to understand that, that sometimes it does take some elements of force. We do know this, even within our modern Canadian state, that it does take at times force to bring about justice. And that force may not be as pretty as we would like it to be in our ideal imagination. I want to talk a little bit about Chronicles. Last night you mentioned that you did a commentary on Chronicles. And uh, it's a book uh, I find interesting for several reasons. So I'll ask you first, uh, what attracted you to the study of Chronicles? <laughs> well, my supervisor, one of my mentors at Cambridge was H.G.M. Williamson, who went on to become professor, Regis Professor of Hebrew at Oxford. And he was a famous Chronicles scholar. He did his dissertation in Chronicles and had written one of the key commentaries on Chronicles in the New Century Bible series. So from the beginning, of course, I knew about Chronicles. I worked in Ezra and Nehemiah, but they're kissing cousins and closely connected to the Chronicler. Some put them all as one big corpus and others say they're, they're separate books as H.G. As Williamson did. But in my own, I was approached to write a commentary on Chronicles because people knew that I had studied under Hugh at Cambridge, and I wasn't too sure. Chronicles is the largest corpus that you'll ever be asked to write a commentary on, just because you don't usually write them as separate, you usually write first and second, and it is the largest continuous corpus for commentary writing. So I was a little fearful of the size of the corpus, its intricacy, and some of the issues related to the Book of Chronicles. And I remember the, the editor of the series, the managing editor of the series, saying to me, well, Mark, you know, the prayer of Jabez just came out and, you know, people are all thinking about Chronicles these days. And I thought, oh, my goodness, you really think that just because they bought Bruce Wilkinson's prayer of Jabez, <laughs> now they're going to buy my commentary on the entire book. But I, I, I bet and uh, said I would I committed myself to this, um, to this commentary. And I will say that I fell in love. I fell in love with this book. It's, it's, a, it's a really interesting book. Um, in particular, for me, as you compare Chronicles and the Book of Kings and Samuel, which it draws pretty heavily on, but it also other books as well, Psalms and Genesis and other books, the, the one responsible for Chronicles, you can see quite clearly how that individual, who appears to be some kind of a Levitical figure, a Levitical singer, musician, lots about Levites of extra material, lots about music and worship. And you can see he's really concerned to minister to his particular people at his time. And because of that, his, his agenda for ministering to that group, which is in the early Persian period, it's, it's after the initial waves of restoration that you find described in Ezra 1 to 6, and it's different than the writer of Kings and Samuel Kings. And Kings in particular seems to be writing to an exilic context. And that different context helps us to understand the differences between Kings and Chronicles, for example. 
And it's simply that they're, they're speaking to a community that's asking some pretty serious questions about their own identity and who they are and how they can live out their lives with Yahweh in this new environment, this new imperial environment of the Persian period. And so he's offering some kind of an agenda by identifying key, certain key things and drawing together certain stories in different ways than you find in, in, the, books of, in the book of Kings or the book of Samuel. So to me, it, it really showed on one level, just hermeneutically, it showed me, hey, here's a pastoral figure who's trying to speak into a certain context and to bring an earlier tradition, right? It's actually kind of an earlier biblical tradition bring it to bear in relevant, exciting ways, actually, for his own, for his own generation. It really is a study, in her, for me, it was a study in hermeneutics to watch them, watch him apply things. To me, the book of Chronicles is uh, a superb book for two, two main themes. Uh, one is for developing worship. I think anyone involved in worship or worship leading, Chronicles and Psalms are the two books you have to have a handle on from the Old Testament. Mm. And the Chronicler brings together the most detailed traditions related to Davidic worship, the establishment of worship, and really unpacks a whole load of stuff in the rhythms of worship that David established, really as, a, as Simon de Vries calls it, a second cult founder within Israel, Moses being the first one. But if you look at, at the tabernacle accounts, there's not a lot about words. That's why Israel Canole called it the sanctuary of silence. <laughs> but where are the words? Well, David fills the silence with words and brings Levitical singers around the ark, not just sacrifice, but now they're singing all the time. So for worship leaders, you've got to tap into Chronicles. And then for preachers, it certainly shows us this message that calls the people to response, calls them to repentance, to seeking God. It's kind of one of the key texts that I would go to for uh, the elements of revival, of renewal within the church and calling people to intimate relationship with, with God. Hmm. For those who are coming to Chronicles, maybe they're just doing a, you know, a one-year Bible reading or, or, or they just have come across that and have decided to read it. Um, uh, help us gain some perspective on why Chronicles starts with just lists of names, <laughs> stuff that we try and get through. Wow, those genealogies. Those genealogies. I don't know who it was. Someone called it scriptural Salmonex, which is an old product for, for sleeping pills. Oh. Uh, if you want to go to sleep at night, start reading Chronicles. And I have to admit, when I was writing the commentary, which got very large, it was originally supposed to be part of a volume with Ezra and Nehemiah, but it got so large, they separated it out, and Gary Smith wrote Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, I was so scared of the genealogies. I didn't know what to do with these genealogies. Even though I had taught for years in hermeneutics the importance of interpreting lists and how lists were used within Scripture and how we need to develop a hermeneutic for how do we actually work with lists. I was still scared. Nine chapters, it is the longest genealogical list in the Bible. So I left it. I didn't touch it. I started in First Chronicles 10 with the story of Saul's suicide and then moved on to the David story because I was just too scared to get into the genealogies. And right near the end then, I came back after I'd done the whole book. And finally, I had to because there was no choice, began to interpret my way through the genealogies. And I fell in love with these genealogies. I read a couple of books that kind of worked on how you work with genealogies in an ancient context. And I just, I saw all this patterning. I, and because I had read the story so intently that at that point, the story that came, I began to see the way that the chronicler was setting up the story to come 
through the genealogies themselves. Now, one thing that the chronicler is doing, the writer chronicles, in the genealogies is he's really trying to tell the story of the primary history, Genesis to Second Kings. He's trying to retell the whole story. But he only has so much, you know, maybe he's a Scotsman or something. I'm, I'm Scottish background. Maybe he doesn't want to buy a whole bunch of scrolls and do it all over again. So he, he covers the first part up till we get to Samuel by working through genealogy. So the first theme is Adam, and he ends with Saul at the end in Second Chronicles, in First Chronicles 9. So he's, in one level, he's just trying to fill the story in and use these list, this list, list of names to go through that story. But along the way, he's, he's shaping this genealogy. He puts key tribes on either end and in the center. Uh, he's bringing in Judah and Benjamin and the Levites, and Levi, the tribe of Levi, uh, at these different spots within the genealogy. That's an important because those are the three tribes that will survive the exile, and that, those are the tribes to which he's ministering. As, But then he doesn't leave out the other tribes, but he places them in between the two outside tribes. He puts the northern tribes there, which seems to show his hope that something is yet to come. The longest genealogy is the genealogy about David, and to me that clearly shows some messianic expectation some expectation for a royal future figure that's going to emerge from the tribe of David, um, from the tribe, from the, the clan of David, and very clearly goes well past the Rebel and into some later later generations, which shows the potential of all of these kids. Some from some place among here is going to come forth a royal house. But the first chapter in the genealogy is the most important because there, as he moves from Adam and goes all the way down till he gets to Abraham. He's trying to lay out the fact that Israel's story is not just about Israel. Mm -hmm. he, it's a, he could have just begun his genealogy with Abraham, why not, or Jacob. But he actually starts with Adam. And I think it's a clear, it's a clear notation, and Gary Knopper is in his kind of magisterial commentary in the Ancient Bible series, and in a couple articles, identifies this. It's almost like a missiological, I don't want to put words into Gary's mouth, but it's almost a missiological element. And he's trying to say, our story is about more than just us. It's about something that God does with us, but it has something ultimately to do with all the nations of the world. And those are reviewed from Adam and down to, to Abraham and Jacob in the very first chapter of the book. Hmm. Interesting. So for those, again, who are pastors listening, first of all, have you ever preached from genealogies? Yes. But not from Chronicles, I have. Uh, maybe I have from one in Chronicles, or did did use it as part of a sermon. Part of a sermon. My fa one of my favorite sermons is a sermon that I preached uh, at Burlington, at North Burlington Baptist Church, which is a convention church, and uh, it was on Matthew Matthew one of the okay. genealogy, and I, I read it in in light of the four stories of the women mm -hmm. in the story in the genealogy. And showed how, tried to argue the way in which the Old Testament narratives are brought behind the text by mentioning those four women, which all have to do with these women that were kind of outsiders to the community that have some sexual innuendos or questions about themselves, but they're brought into the community by a patriarchal figure and they become part of the line of the Messiah, uh, you know, Rahab and Tamar and, Bash, and Bathsheba. Um, these, these figures that are given, interestingly, I think those stories all set up a fifth woman, who is Mary, of course, who also has a sexual innuendo question around her, a cloud over her. And, of course, Joseph brings her into the community and a messianic figure comes forth. 
And to me, there's just some powerful themes there. Of course, I'm doing a very much as Old Testament theology, aren't I, in doing that, I'm trying to show the way in which that Old Testament context is, is being kind of brought into the background. And I think genealogies do this regularly. They're not just there for a bunch of names. They're actually bringing up these stories. And every so often, you'll find in Chronicles, in the genealogy, they'll have this uh, kind of a narrative little piece those are really important, and the chronicler brings those in. And if you analyze just those little pieces where narrative pieces are in there, these often have kind of are setting up certain elements of theology that will be developed in the story later on after the genealogies. So he's being very subtle. He's filling in the story historically, but he's also preparing us for what is yet to come in the story that follows in Second Chronicles, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles. Okay. Any uh, any other tips for uh, those who are uh, maybe tackling some sermons based in chronicles. Well, you can't. You probably can't preach the whole the whole thing. It, it might be a bit much, but uh, you know you can focus your attention on certain large swaths of material, or you can focus in on some key passages. Uh, you know, maybe do a sermon on genealogies in general and what's the big deal about these names. And uh, uh, you could do. You know, I would definitely do something on you know the rise of David, his passion for worship. Uh, something on definitely on Solomon and the famous programmatic statement of Solomon. Uh, if my people are called by my name, you know, they'll humble themselves. That famous passage, which really sets up an agenda, which is true through the rest of Chronicles, of these key themes of humbling yourself, of seeking God, of repenting, so that God will heal, heal our land. So that intimate connection between the people covenantally and, and God. And in Chronicles, kind of some of the high points, I mean, you can preach some of the negative points too, but some of the high points are, of course, Hezekiah and Josiah as key renewal moments. And in Chronicles, Hezekiah is the highest moment. It's beyond David and Solomon. Um, and as it comes to an end, it really is calling the community, the very last words to, you know, go up, go up and worship. It's, it's calling the community to go to seek God and to worship God and to support the worship of God. So that's kind of how the whole thing ends. He sets up the audience for all of us to pursue God with all our heart. Great. Well, thanks so much for this conversation. Uh, just lastly, for anyone who's interested in in your uh, research books you publish, where could they go to find you online? Oh, just if you just go to McMasterDivinity.com, CA to our, our website as a as an institution. I have a faculty web page there and all my books are laid out there with links and hopefully that'll help you get a, an idea of the kinds of things that I've been, been working on. Great. Well again thanks very much and thanks for listening to this episode.